Merry Christmas, church. Man, we got to do that again, church. Let's try this one more time. Merry Christmas, church. Now that's how it ought to be because you are redeemed and you know the Lord and we can say certainly Merry Christmas. Andy Williams said it best. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And if you know me, you know I love Christmas and I love everything about it. I love the trees and the lights and the giving of gifts and I actually enjoy doing Christmas shopping. I don't enjoy baking but I enjoy eating and I enjoy decorations and I enjoy family get-togethers and Unfortunately, let me, let me remind you of this, Christian. There are those who will try to sort of shame you as a Christian for enjoying the cultural aspects of the Christmas holiday. Don't let them do that. There are some that will say, well, Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. So what? You know, the last time we celebrated my birthday on my birthday, I couldn't tell you. The point is we are celebrating the arrival of our Lord and Savior. There are those that will say, well, Christmas trees are pagan. They're not pagan. I've read Jeremiah 10. It has nothing to do with that. So enjoy the fun festivities. However, for the Christian, we must also remember what Christmas actually is. That it's, there's nothing man-made about the Christmas story. That it's a story of divine origin filled with promise and hope and light, and grace, and peace, and goodness. Christmas is the story about God entering into human history, where God sends his son, but the son also willingly came, stepped into our world. Because we know this, that God created all of reality, both the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible. We know that God made it good and it's fantastic and we enjoy his creation. However, mankind rebelled. We wanted to do things our way. Because of that, we, we fell away from God. Yet, from the very beginning, God had a plan and Christmas was part of that plan that Jesus, the lamb, would be born to die. That Jesus, the lamb, would be born to die. And so it's today <clears throat> that we begin a brand new series that we're calling From the Cradle to the Cross. And we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to work through that together. So for the next four weeks, we'll be in the first two chapters looking at the Christmas story. And then in the weeks and months to come, we're going to see the life and ministry of, of Jesus and then when Easter arrives, we'll finish out the last few chapters of Luke, looking at Jesus' march to Calvary. Oh, church, I'm excited that we get to walk through a gospel together. And so this morning, let's jump in. Jesus born to die from the cradle to the cross. Let me give you a little bit of backstory about the gospel of Luke. We know it is one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. They all have uh, an overlap of material. But Luke's gospel is the longest. And as a matter of fact, Luke is the uh, longest book in the New Testament. And if you couple Luke with Acts, you get about 25% of the New Testament writings. But who was Luke? Well, we really don't know a whole lot about him. We know that he was a Gentile. 
We know that he was a doctor and sort of his physician's heart gets poured out into his writings as he looks at some of those that were marginalized in Jewish society. So whether that's Gentiles or tax collectors or lepers, Luke also places a good emphasis on women as well who were unfortunately marginalized in that society. Uh, But Luke was also a good friend of the Apostle Paul. He followed Paul around with a, you know, a notebook and a pen and he sort of jotted notes down, went with Paul on missionary journeys. Paul and Luke had a great relationship. But Luke's book is incredibly detailed and he tells about the life and the ministry of Jesus, but he constantly throughout his gospel reminds us of the love that God has for people like us, sinners who fall short of God's grace. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, let's jump into the third gospel, third book in the New Testament, book of Luke. We're going to begin in chapter 1, and we're going to work through this book together. So Luke writes, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He says, it seemed good to me also, listen to his words, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now you notice Luke is writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. Uh, Who was Theophilus? Well, we were not entirely sure, but many believe that Theophilus was perhaps a a Roman official that came to know the Lord. And so Luke writes to him to inform him of who Jesus was, what his ministry was about, and what Jesus did. And, And certainly in a broader context, Luke writes to all people at all times as we understand who Jesus was and what he did in his life. So you'll notice here what Luke is doing. He's reporting. He is establishing what is historical for this gentleman he's writing to named Theophilus. And he says, I got my information from eyewitnesses. He says, I I followed things closely. I want to give you an orderly, organized, logical account. Why? He says, so Theophilus, you might have certainty. And I would say for us as well, as we read these historical documents about Jesus and his life and his ministry, that we too might have certainty because it's historical. These are eyewitnesses accounts. They are detailed that we might have certainty. Now, as we move on in the text today, we're going to look at two children of promise. Two, uh, two birth announcements, if you will, or announcements of conception. The first one being a guy by the name of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus. The second announcement of, hey, surprise, you're pregnant, comes announcing the Messiah, the coming birth of Jesus. And so let's begin this morning in verse 5. Let's talk about the promise of a baby by the name of John. Follow with me, verse 5. <coughs> It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and all the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, our text says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless. Now, this does not mean sinless. When you come across this in the, in the text, it doesn't mean that they were sinless. It means instead that they were two people who chose to follow after and to seek after God. However, our text tells us that they never had kids. And for Elizabeth, this was a struggle because in Jewish society, kids were viewed as just a gift, a blessing from the Lord. And so for her not to have kids, it was a struggle. And she probably frequently sort of met the disdain of other people who looked at her and said, I wonder what you did that God wouldn't give you the blessing and the privilege of having a child. Now, it's unfortunate that sometimes people approach it that way. Now, certainly, our sin always leads to our suffering. However, all of our sufferings and difficulties and discouragements are not always a result of our sins. Sometimes, bad things happen strictly for the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world, and that is the world into which Jesus would enter. Verse 8. It says, now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, and according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now Luke will frequently just report things matter-of-factly, but what we don't understand from this passage is that this would have been a tremendous honor for Zechariah, that many priests would serve their whole lifetime and never get to go into the temple to burn incense. It was something of, of esteem, a, a, a privilege. But I want you to see here, I want to be reminded as we work through this text, we're going to kind of take some, some notes and see some applications. I want you to see here the holiness of God. Now, in the temple, the altar of incense was right in front of this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And priests would perform their duties quickly here for fear that they would do something wrong, dishonor God, and that he might kill them. And so even on the, uh, the Day of Atonement in Israel once a year, the high priest, he would wear bells on his robe so that everyone outside could hear him moving through the temple, that they would know that he hadn't died within the presence of God. And I read that, and I read about their, their revere for God, and it makes me look at us as, as modern Christians. And I think sometimes we simply lose the holiness of God. Yes, the Bible says that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he is our friend, but he's not our chum, he's not our buddy, he's not our, our homeboy. He's not some puny God, he's not some genie waiting on a request. He's God. And so we see that in the text that, that Zechariah and the priests would take their duty in the presence of God so very, very seriously. But I also want us to note this, that God is about to speak to Zechariah. And I want us to consider as we look at this in our own lives, Am I listening to and listening for the voice of God in my life? And, and sometimes as Christians, we have sort of this mentality that we, we expect God to speak to us maybe when we go to a conference or maybe when we're, um, you know, at, at church camp or um, on a mission trip. But 
what we'll find is that God speaks to us just as often in our daily activities and our, in our daily routines. You know, Moses and David were, were tending sheep when God spoke to them. Peter was mending his nets when Jesus called him. God speaks during the normal routine of our daily life. Our, a question we have to ask, though, is are we listening And if we want to hear God speak, what do we go to? We go to his word. And if we're not reading his word, odds are good we're going to miss God when he speaks to us. Notice in verse 11, it's what happens in Zechariah's life. He's in doing his priestly duties at the altar of incense. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, rightly so, when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, and angels say this a lot. I don't know if I would ever want to hear this or not. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And so an angel appears to Zechariah. Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Now, don't miss the significance of what's going on in Luke chapter 1 because God has been silent. He has been mute in the nation of Israel for 400 years. God has not spoken through prophet or through revelation for 400 years, but something is happening in this moment. Pax Romana, for such a time as this, Rome has united the world. It's the perfect setting. God breaks the silence, and he breaks it first with a priest named Zechariah, and he says, guess what? You're going to have, your wife's going to have a baby. Now, as we look at verse 13 again, I want to remind us of this as we make application, that we, as Christians, we have to trust God's timing. Let me tell you what, I'm awful at this. Because sometimes I get this this notion that God somehow works on on my schedule of things and that he orders affairs in in the way that I want him to. But, But believe it or not, God knows better than Josh knows and God knows better than Zechariah knew. Look at verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, what prayer is this? Well, for years, Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed, God, give us, give us children. Give us a child. But then the years stacked up. They grew older and older, and they stopped praying that prayer because they were well past the age of being able to conceive a child. And then this angel shows up and says, those prayers that you prayed way back then, God heard them then. And in his time, those prayers are being answered now. Now, Christian, I want to remind you of this, that every prayer you utter, God hears every single one of those. And sometimes God answers with an immediate yes. Sometimes God answers with an immediate no. And then sometimes, as was the case with Zechariah, it was wait. When the time was right, the couple got a yes. And their, their sort of suffering was turned into blessing and joy. Can I remind you, Christian? Maybe you feel like you're in a similar circumstance where you pray and you pray and you pray. I want to remind you that God hears those prayers. Trust God's timing. And now as we, as we continue on in verse 14, we see this, this description of the blessing of this promise. 
He says, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel toward the Lord their God and he will go before him in spirit and in power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's for the Lord, a people prepared. So much is wrapped up in this miraculous pregnancy. But listen to what Zechariah says in verse 18. His, his fear turns to doubt. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife, he says it very tactfully, she's advanced in years too. So he was smart. First, Zechariah is fearful, now he's doubtful. Let me remind you of this, that doubt is not a modern phenomenon in Christianity. That sometimes I think we as modern Christians, we view doubt as something more unique to our time period since we're so far removed from the events that are recorded in Scripture, since we are so enlightened and scientific because there are supposed contradictions between Christianity and science, there's not. However, what we see when we open Scripture is we see doubt along the way in different people's lives. And maybe you struggle with doubt. Will, will God keep his promises? Does God really know my name? Does he hear me? Is God really there? Do I matter? Is there a plan for my life? Or is this just kind of unfolding at random? We could list doubt after doubt after doubt that Christians have, that they have had. But let me remind you this morning that the God of Scripture is a promise-keeping God. If God said he is near you, he's near you. If he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he will never leave you or forsake you. If he says he's attentive and he hears the prayers of a righteous man, he hears you matter. He, if he promises to use you, he will use you. Trust the promise maker and the promise keeper. And so Zechariah doubts. And the angel sort of gives him sort of a kindness and a punishment rolled into one. Sort of a little bit of a punishment for his doubt, but also it's a sign of the validity of what God has spoken through Gabriel. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife's advanced in years. And the angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you're gonna be silent, unable to talk until the day that these things take place because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering about his delay in the temple. Did he mess up? Did God strike him dead? What's going on? And he came out, verse 22, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. God's doing something. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. It's this game of charades right outside the temple. And when his time of service was ended, he went home, curious to see his wife, I'm sure. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, that's baby number one, and it's miraculous. Older, barren couple, well past the years of conceiving a child, they're going to have a baby. This is the first of many miracles we'll see in Luke's 
gospel. God is doing something. The silence has been broken. But then we turn our attention to baby number two, the promise of Jesus. Now, as, as we move on to this miraculous promise of baby number two, I want to ask you a question. Do you know where the Christmas story first shows up in Scripture? And our tendency is to probably say, well, yeah, you know, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. Well, actually, if we go all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis 3.15, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. But we see the Christmas story three chapters in to God's holy scripture. Let me read to you Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And what's taking place here is man has fallen into sin. We've messed it up and God is pronouncing a series of curses. Listen to the curse that he utters toward the serpent. Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you're going to go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's the woman? And between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's this talking about? This is talking about this expected Messiah that would come long, long, many years, thousands of years down the road. What does this tell us? It tells us that God knew that God planned, that Christmas goes all the way back to the beginning, that the Old Testament is full of Christmas with all of these multiple prophecies that point to a coming Messiah who would be born to die. Verse 26, back to Luke. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so Gabriel waits six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Then he goes and visits her cousin, a woman by the name of Mary, to a town of Nazareth. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? Nazareth was a nothing town. We're talking a few hundred people. It's not even a dot on the map. And who was Mary? Well, Mary was a nobody, an unknown. She was just a teenage girl in a nowhere town. Sounds like a Hallmark movie in the making, doesn't it? However, Mary was faithful and obedient. I want you to see this as we look at, if we look at Mary's story and Joseph's story. And as we really think about Luke too, who's largely, we don't really know who he was. That God will use anyone. That God will use anyone. You don't have to have a list of qualifications. You don't have to have a polished resume for God to be willing to use you. Now, as I look at my own life, I find this immensely comforting. Because who's Josh Fultz? Nobody. Where is he from? A nowhere town called Kirbyville, Texas? That's where I hail from? Who's ever heard of that? Orange is a thriving metropolis compared to Nazareth and Kirbyville. But let me tell you what, if we are willing to say, God, I don't have much, I'm not a special person, but I'm willing to be used by you, Scripture says that God will use us, and that's exactly what we see in the life of Mary. Betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Significant that it lists the house of David, because we know the prophecy. We'll see in Luke 3 as well that Mary was also a descendant of David. 
This is what scripture says, that the Messiah will come from the lineage of David, that he'll sit on David's throne, that he will rule forever. But what else does the text say about Mary? It says that Mary was a virgin. Now, why is this crucial? Because the virgin birth means that Jesus is both human and divine, that he was both man and he is God. That is to say, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, the Son, fully divine, would enter into humanity and he would take on another nature of what it means to be a human. All God, all man. Jesus had an earthly mother giving him a human nature, but no earthly father. That's something only God can do. Now, if Jesus would have had an earthly dad, like you and like I, then he was just a man. And if Jesus was just a man, then Jesus couldn't be a savior. And if Jesus couldn't be a savior, then there's no gospel. And if there's no gospel, there's no forgiveness of sins, and there's no hope, and there's no future. There is no Christmas. So John the Baptist, his conception was miraculous. An old barren couple conceives. Luke contrasts Jesus's conception with even that of the miraculous John's conception because Jesus had no earthly father. But when it comes to Mary, nothing special about Mary. She was just a faithful, young woman. But she was still a sinner, just like you and just like I. But think about this, that Mary would carry in her womb the one who would save her from her sins. Now, how amazing is that? That Mary would carry in her womb the one who ultimately would be her savior. Mary would deliver her deliverer, if you will. But wait, the text says she's favored. Why was she favored? Well, this is just God bestowing grace on Mary. That she didn't deserve it. This is just God's grace. That Mary was a receiver of grace, not a giver of grace. She was a woman just like any other. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, rightly so, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her those famous words, don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves And he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now again, Luke, matter-of-factly, he reports, he'll be great. And you think, that's not a good enough word for a Savior. But what word could, could Luke have used that would truly describe who Jesus is and what he means to us? But Mary's got a question. Look at verse 34. She says, I have the confusion here. How will this be since I'm a virgin? How am I going to have a child since I have known no man? Now, Mary will not always be a virgin. As a matter of fact, after Jesus is born, her and Joseph will have normal relationship and they'll have more kids. But this conception was miraculous. She says, I'm having a kid. And I've never known a man. How's this going to happen? The angel responds, verse 35. It says, And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, of the same essence as God, because he is God. 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. 
And, in, and this is the sixth month with her who was also called barren. Two miraculous acts. But here Gabriel is about to answer her question with a tremendous truth that I want to be reminded of this morning. Look at verse 37. This is what Gabriel says. She says, how can this be? How can I have a baby when I've known no man? Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. What a tour de force, powerful verse. Stated the opposite way, with God, all things are possible. Maybe you're here this morning and you just needed to hear God remind you that with God all things are possible. Maybe you're here and you have a, a, a son or a daughter or a friend or you know someone who has gotten away from God or maybe they've just even walked away from God altogether. I'm reminded in situations like that that with God all things are possible. God can bring people back to himself. Sometimes we get a diagnosis or we get a sickness. Let me remind you, all things are possible with God, that God can heal Maybe sometimes we deal with fear and anxiety about stresses in our lives and in the world that can I remind you that with God all things are possible, that God can overcome no matter what our fears, our worries are. Perhaps it's depression and loss, that God can breathe new hope and life, our past sins and failures, that all things are possible with God, that he can forgive anything. The person that sometimes we say, oh, they'll never change. With God all things are possible. Here are the words of the angel. He who has ears, let him hear. With man, sure, there are limitations, but with God, all things are possible. And that's the gospel message, that we as people were in such a state that we couldn't deal with our sin, that our sins are far too abundant. We fall short of a perfectly holy God. We can fix ourselves. But with God, with God, all things are possible that we might have a relationship with him. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And as Luke is popular for saying, and the angel departed from her. Now, church, maybe you're here this morning as we've worked through a good part of Luke chapter one. Maybe today you just needed to be reminded as we saw in Zechariah's workings in the temple that we serve a holy God. Maybe, maybe we have lost our awe and our respect and our revere for who God is. Maybe you're here this morning and you needed to be asked the question of, Am I listening for God's voice? Because God is always speaking. He's speaking through his word. What would he have you do? Maybe he's calling you to make a change in your life. Or maybe he's calling you to repent. Or maybe he's causing you to, to make amends or to restore something. Are you listening to the voice of God? Maybe you're at a place in your life where you need to trust God's timing. Just like we saw with Zechariah and Elizabeth wanting kids. They prayed and prayed. Maybe you're praying and praying. It feels like God's not answering. Will you just trust his timing? Will you let it go and will you put it back in God's hands? Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with doubt. Maybe this is sort of common for you, that you frequently doubt God and doubt what he said or doubt his presence. Maybe he's calling you to trust. This is nothing new. People doubt sometimes. But look at God's faithfulness. 
Look at what he's done over the span of human history. Perhaps look at what he's done in your own life. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning that God can and will use anybody. Mary was a nobody from a nobody town. But she was faithful. If we're faithful, God will use us. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just needed to hear the words that with God, all things are possible. Maybe there's something going on in your life and maybe you're just sort of on the the edge of giving up. With God, all things are possible. So as we close out the first 38 verses in the book of Luke, we see two babies. We see two promises. We see God break the silence of 400 years. That God is doing something, that Christmas has come, that salvation has come. That God is still up to something. Christian, be comforted.